Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, can women be a part of the monastic community? There are some naysayers, but I think that the path of liberation is freely walked by all sentient beings, and so people of every gender identity ought to be allowed to walk it. Women face no more and no less barriers to attaining enlightenment than men do. Why are there naysayers? We human beings are constrained by our prejudices and biases, and are unable to set them aside, even when dealing with that which is beyond delusion and ignorance. I suppose that is the cause of many discriminations. Selfishness and projections of internalized prejudice. Indeed. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be discussing Ananda. Who is Ananda? What role does he play in the texts? How does this role change over time? We hope you enjoy. So, who is Ananda? Ananda was one of the Buddha's ten foremost disciples and one of his primary attendants. He was the Buddha's cousin and lived during the same time as he did. Some accounts say that Ananda was born on the same day as the Buddha, while others say that he was born the day the Buddha reached enlightenment, which is thought to have been whenever the Buddha was 35. I tend to believe this second account of Ananda's age more simply because Ananda lived for a long time after the Buddha died, and he played a very active role in the community, as we will see. This account is also corroborated by more textual evidence, wherein he is considerably younger than the Buddha. Ananda was ordained very early on in the Buddha's preaching career, being one of his family members and one of his caste, the Kshatriya caste, and so was one of the earliest members of the Sangha. Ananda's father was initially very resistant to having his son ordained with the Buddha for political and financial reasons. If his oldest son were to renounce, then the son couldn't inherit and the family fortune becomes liquidated. So when the Buddha was visiting Ananda's hometown, Ananda's father, the Buddha's uncle, having already seen what happened with the Buddha himself and knowing that these two were cousins, he took his son Ananda to a different town, but the Buddha actually ended up meeting Ananda anyways, and during their encounter, Ananda eventually decided to renounce and follow the Buddha. For about 20 years after his ordination by the Buddha, he studied and worked and rose through the ranks, and the Buddha went through several attendants, but when the Buddha turned about 55 years old, he told the community how he needed a more permanent attendant. He was getting older and his previous attendants were kind of doing a bad job, and so many of the Buddha's foremost disciples tried to step up and become the primary attendant. They were nearly begging the Buddha to select them for the position, and all the while it said that Ananda remained completely and totally silent. The Buddha asked Ananda why he wasn't jumping up and down trying to get the job like some of the other monks, and Ananda simply replied, You will know who is best for the position. Because of this response, the Buddha selected Ananda as his permanent and most primary attendant for the latter part of his life. Ananda had a few conditions to accepting the position. One was that the Buddha could not bestow upon him any material benefit, lest the other disciples think that Ananda took the position for the perks out of nepotism, given that they were related. 
Next, he required that the Buddha allow him to ask questions about the doctrine and the teaching. Finally, he required that the Buddha repeat anything that he taught in Ananda's absence. The Buddha accepted these conditions, and Ananda attended him for about 25 years. This meant taking care of the Buddha's practical needs, like delivering clean water, guarding the Buddha, walking with him, carrying stuff for him, running messages for him, teaching in his absence, etc. Because of Ananda's conditions, we see him acting as the Buddha's interlocutor in many of the texts, but we'll come back to that in the next question. Ananda was a very dutiful and observant disciple of the Buddha, and even risked his life to protect the Buddha on a few occasions. For example, when Devadatta attempted to kill the Buddha by letting loose a drunk and wild elephant in his presence, Ananda stepped in front of the Buddha to protect him. Ananda is also well known for having established the Order of Nuns among the Buddha's disciples. While the Buddha was teaching, on a couple of occasions, his foster mother and his former wife came to find him and asked to be ordained as nuns, but the Buddha refused them in that moment. Seeing this, Ananda actually felt pity for them, and he convinced the Buddha to ordain them by reminding the Buddha how good his foster mother and his former wife had been to him before he renounced, reminding him that other Buddhas have ordained nuns, and reminding him that women can become enlightened. The Buddha relented and ordained them. This, as you remember, caused Mahakashapa to criticize Ananda, or we could even say charge him with a crime, because he was very strongly against the ordination of women in the Sangha. Now we come to the death of the Buddha, which is covered in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. We have read and discussed this in its entirety, and so I'll link those episodes in the show notes. To give the highlights, you'll remember that Ananda was not yet enlightened by the time the Buddha was 80 years old, and that he was resistant to the Buddha dying, and had to be reminded in several very emotional episodes that all things are impermanent, and that the Buddha had left the community with everything they would need to succeed and continue to reach enlightenment. Ananda had been following the Buddha around for nearly 45 years at this point, and had spent about 20 of those years as his primary attendant, and they were also family members. And so Ananda was very sad to lose this man who he had formed a very close friendship with, who he was family with, and who had transformed his life in a lot of very important ways. And so we see Ananda express all of those feelings and emotions in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta text. Soon after the Buddha's death, there was an urgency among the community to meet and to figure out what to do next. This was called the First Buddhist Council, which took place immediately after the Buddha's death and was presided over by Mahakashapa. There was a whole drama about Ananda not being allowed to attend this council because Mahakashapa only wanted enlightened arhats, or followers of the Buddha, to attend, and Ananda had not yet reached enlightenment. This humiliated Ananda, and so he committed to gaining enlightenment before the council began. He tried the night before really, really hard, but he got tired and decided to go to sleep. As soon as he stopped, he reached enlightenment right then and there, halfway between standing and lying down. He's regarded thus as the only disciple of the Buddha who ever attained enlightenment while not in one of the four traditional body poses, which are sitting, standing, lying down, or walking. So they began this council with Ananda in attendance. One of the most important things they did was recite all of the sermons of the Buddha so that they could be standardized, remembered, and sorted into what eventually became the Pali Canon. Ananda was called upon to do this because he was regarded as the disciple of the Buddha who was foremost in memory. So the whole time that he was attending the Buddha, he was also committing the sermons to memory. 
And that can give us an answer as to why he was asking the Buddha to recite all of the teachings and doctrines to him that had been preached in his absence. Ananda is said to have remembered 84,000 teaching topics. All of the sermons we read begin with, Thus have I heard, indicating that the sermon that is being reported in front of you is being reported by Ananda from his memory. Soon after this portion of the council, Mahakashapa then charged Ananda with disciplinary offenses. He was charged for enabling women to join the Sangha, for having forgotten to request the Buddha to specify which offenses of monastic discipline could be disregarded, for having stepped on the Buddha's robe one time, for having allowed women to honor the Buddha's body after his death, which was not properly dressed, and during which the body was sullied by their tears, and also for having failed to ask the Buddha to continue to live on. Ananda did not regard these as having been offenses, but he did confess to doing them and gave explanations for them. There was no punishment leveled against him for these offenses that I could find. Ananda continued to pass on the teaching in western India until his death, which if we follow the timeline that says he was born the same day as the Buddha, was allegedly at the age of about 120. If we follow the other timeline, he would have been roughly 85 years old or so. Again, this latter timeline is much more realistic and makes much more sense. In the last days of Ananda's life, he heard a younger monk recite a sermon incorrectly, and he made to correct this young monk. But he got told by the young monk that he was getting old and that his memory was impaired. This caused Ananda to initiate the process of attaining final nirvana. He traveled around the river Ganges for a while at this stage, and was followed around by King Ajatasatru on one side of the river, and Ajatasatru's enemies the Lachavis on the other side, each of whom were interested in keeping Ananda's relics when he died. To resolve this, Ananda supernaturally made his body rise up into the air and immolate, right over the center of the river, allowing his relics to fall to both banks and go to both groups, who each built a stupa on each side of the river for the remains. So, based on the story just told, would Ananda have been the first person to reach enlightenment after the Buddha died? He wasn't, I don't think. I think that there was somebody in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta who ordained very, like, immediately after the Buddha died. Historically as well, this first Buddhist council is said in the Pali Canon to have taken place, like, right after the death of the Buddha, but a lot of scholarly sources are starting to say that, in fact, it took place at least a week after, but possibly as much as like three months after, because there were very elaborate rituals. And you remember from the story that it was a very complicated process of splitting up the relics. And so there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there was an intervening probably month, I would guess between the moment of his death and the moment of Ananda's enlightenment. However, his story does function to tell us that it's possible to reach enlightenment after the Buddha has died. I think that there's a chance that you can read his story as saying that Ananda was enlightened countless lifetimes ago, and he, as a skillful means, kind of held back from reaching enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha and only did it after his death to demonstrate to us that you can rely solely on the teachings, solely on what the Buddha left for us in order to reach enlightenment. 
Uh, so that's one interpretation. And even if you take the interpretation that Ananda was a person who lived in history and he reached enlightenment when he reached enlightenment, then still the idea is like Ananda is a role model for someone who did it his own way after the Buddha had died. I'll offer up a secondary explanation just as a narrative idea. It seems like a big part of what was holding him back from enlightenment was attachment to the Buddha. In the Parinibbana Sutta, he demonstrates a attachment that is part of the problem. So, you know, this is me being a narrative designer. I'm thinking he needed the Buddha to die to reach enlightenment because he's needed to lose that last attachment. It's very true. It's a very good interpretation because the thing that he was struggling the most with during the death of the Buddha, if if we remember from the Sutta, is impermanence. All things that arise must cease. And he'd heard that, and I'm sure that he knew what that meant. But seeing his own cousin, the Buddha, die, seeing this person who had exhibited supernatural powers and who had preached on this wonderful dharma that had never been heard before and that blew everybody's minds, he was thinking to himself that surely someone this enlightened and surely someone this powerful could live forever and that they could continue to enlighten people well beyond the bounds of regular human lifespan. And the Buddha was like, sorry, no, that's just not how it works. Even Buddhas, even gods die. And finally, one thing I'll note with the spat between Mahakashipa and Ananda, Ananda did ask for the Buddha to stay, though. He did it several times. Right, yeah. So there are a couple of those things that he admitted to and confessed to that he has a different version of that he could have absolutely contested with Mahakashapa. However, Ananda, we kind of see a little bit of his personality early on in the story where he just kind of goes with the flow. He's kind of laid back and just kind of lets stuff happen. And the explanation during his sort of being charged and tried for these different offenses against the community is that he decided to let these charges be leveled and not fight them so that he could go along with the narrative of the older monks. Mahakashapa was quite a bit older than him at this point and had actually risen in the ranks among the 10 disciples to the foremost. Like he was the foremost in mind-to-mind -mind transmission of the Dharma. Every single of the 10 had their own little superlatives, but Mahakashapa was kind of incontrovertibly at the time the top disciple and was poised to be the successor, so to speak, as the leader of the community. And Ananda decided to allow the elders, the more enlightened ones, the, the ones who had been more favored by the Buddha to kind of let that narrative fly. And in the end, it didn't really hurt him that much because there's not really punishment for these sort of offenses. You know, if he had committed one of the five grave offenses, like attempting to kill a Buddha or something like that, then he could have been expelled from the community. Or if he stacked up enough of these tiny misdemeanors, then he could have been probably knocked back down to the level of novice monk or something like that. But I really couldn't find anything. I think that they leveled these charges and then it was just over. And then he was like, yeah, I did those things. Sorry. And the point of the Buddhist council was just to establish a precedent and to be kind of like a show of 
hierarchical authority in the monastic structure after the Buddha had died. It feels really depressing that that's one of the first things that happens after the Buddha died. Just, it seems like non-duality really should rip up hierarchy in a lot of spots, but I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there, so... And it really should in a lot of cases, but the truth was, unfortunately, in that moment for Ananda, the truth was that Mahakashapa was much more learned and wise and much more enlightened. And Ananda, by some accounts, had reached enlightenment by the night before, but it was like the night before. Um, but by other accounts, he actually had not reached enlightenment yet. And one of the tough things, of course, about this is like, how do you know? How does anybody know? How does anybody know that Ananda has reached enlightenment? Ananda could have said that he reached enlightenment and somebody else could have just as easily said, no, you haven't, right? There's no way to really demonstrate that very well. But at the same time, if there was a way to demonstrate it well, I certainly think it would be something along the lines of reciting all 84,000 lectures that the Buddha gave from memory, right? But, you know, like we say, we weren't there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Let's get back to the script. So, what role does Ananda play in the texts? As you can see, he's one of the most important characters in the entire canon. He is almost constantly present when the Buddha is teaching, and he's possibly single-handedly responsible for the existence of the canon in the form that we have it now. He was also critically important in the ritual and monastic tradition, in that we have him to thank for the ordination of women into the Sangha. The fact that he was unenlightened for the Buddha's entire career also serves a narrative function in the texts themselves. Just as Shariputra represents the early teachings in the Mahayana texts, so too does Ananda represent the unenlightened in the texts. He's a foil for the Buddha to accentuate his enlightened qualities, and he's a stand-in for the unenlightened audience to ask the very mundane and simple questions, and represent the mundane feelings that we have as we're following the Buddha's story around through the texts. For example, if you're a Buddhist and you're reading the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, you're also feeling what Ananda is feeling whenever the Buddha predicts his own death. You're feeling sad and you're wondering why the Buddha can't use his powers to lengthen his life. That's just what Ananda is feeling and saying in the texts, and it causes the Buddha not only to address him, but to address us, the readers, as well, and say, I've been saying since day one that all things are impermanent and to desire for anything else is to plant the seeds of suffering within yourself. If we go back to his selection as the attendant of the Buddha, I think he is also a literary ideal for the role. You'll remember from our discussion of Mahakashapa that he really wanted the job, and he felt himself the most qualified and senior of the Buddha's disciples. We can almost see him envisioning himself as the Buddha's successor before the Buddha has even passed away. We should not forget that he is very senior and very qualified. The Buddha's funeral was delayed until Mahakashapa could get there. And that wasn't Mahakashapa's doing, that was the rest of the community out of respect for Mahakashapa to allow him to pay his respects. He's clearly very important. However, he has way more aspirations to power and status than Ananda had. Ananda was super casual about his selection as primary attendant, not electing to try to persuade the Buddha or to sell himself. He was like, Meh, the Buddha will make the right choice. That's who the Buddha would have wanted in the position because he would not have used the position to influence the Buddha or influence affairs in the community according to his own machinations. He also would not have used it for personal gain of any kind, as evidenced by his conditions of not receiving any material gains from the Buddha for having been elected 
as primary attendant. It reminds us that the desire to be closer to the Buddha is still a desire, which is not becoming of enlightened individuals. Ananda was clearly transformative in the community as a disciple and an attendant of the Buddha, as a member of the Sangha, and as a transmitter of the teaching. How does Ananda's role change over time? Not being enlightened for the entire lifespan of the Buddha's career, his role was very under the radar. He attended the Buddha in a very servile capacity and never really made a lot of waves outside of encouraging the Buddha to ordain nuns. Other than that, he mainly has the flat role of being a listener and attendant and an interlocutor to the Buddha. Later in his life, after the Buddha has died, he proves to be the most important guy around. Nobody else was capable of remembering all 84,000 sermons for posterity. That's why Mahakashapa had him come to the First Buddhist Council, even if he had charged Ananda before the elder monks, or, by other accounts, even if he had not quite yet been enlightened by that point. His role in the Sangha and in the Buddhist Council was so critically important, even if it was subtle, and I think that should be the major takeaway from this question. I also want to come back to the importance of encouraging the Buddha to ordain women. The teaching itself, the very doctrine of it, does not exclude women. The human beings of the teachings, namely the monks and even the Buddha, were sexist in how they presented things, saying that women could not become Buddhas and that their bodies were defiled and polluted. The gap between the humans saying that and the teaching saying something else needed to be closed somehow, and it still does need to be closed in a lot of respects. Because of that, it is very good and encouraging to see a primary disciple of the Buddha who advocates for the inclusion of women in the community. Buddhism and what it preaches and what it promises ought to be for everybody anywhere. Because of creating the order of nuns, Ananda has come to be highly honored and revered by the nuns. They frequently make offerings to him and give gratitude for him. There have also been several cults around Ananda throughout history across East Asia. These cults have similarly popped up around Mahakashapa and other disciples of the Buddha in different sects of Buddhism. They're just small worship groups who dedicate rituals and offerings to the figure in question. We scholars frequently have these cults to thank for a lot of the art and iconography of the figure that we're talking about, in this case Ananda. Much of the art and iconography we have of him comes to us from these cult groups in China and even in Japan, and they allow us to see into small divisions of the Buddhist community in Asia across history. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion about Ananda. Join us next week where we will be getting a little philosophical and discussing human nature in Buddhism. Does Buddhism regard human nature as inherently good or bad? Do other religions adjacent to Buddhism regard human nature as inherently good or bad? What does this mean in practice? Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this has meant Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.